This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Thousands of financial advisors, asset managers, and investors rely on YCharts to develop insights, make smarter investment decisions, and effectively communicate with prospects and clients. With industry-leading tools, you're empowered to create compelling visuals that emphasize the strengths of your investment strategies. For more information, start a free trial at YCharts.com or follow on Twitter at YCharts. Now, we hope you enjoy this episode of the 7 Investing Podcast. Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at 7 Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest for your future. I'm joined today by my fellow lead advisor, Nirvan Mahanti. Say hi, Ma- uh, Nirvan. Hello, everyone. Uh, and we're joined by our special guest today, uh, frequent guest, Alex Morris, the creator of the Substack uh, Science of Hitting uh, uh, Research, Investment Research. Alex, how are you doing? Doing good. That's close enough. All right. (laughs) So today we're going to be taking a look at seven stocks. Uh, As anybody who's paying attention to the stock market knows, we are we are currently in a bear market where the meaning the S and P five hundred and the Nasdaq are down well more than twenty percent, and several stocks are down more than that. In fact, several of the the darling stocks that were beloved by Fintwit and growth investors over the last several years have taken severe hits in the last six months to year. So today we're going to be taking a look at seven of them that are down by at least 50% from their all-time highs. And those stocks will be Netflix, PayPal, Upstart, Peloton, Block or Square, Okta, and Spotify. Uh, and we'll be taking a look at those, and we'll be we're going to let you know if we think these stocks are wrecked and they're not going to regain their all-time highs, or if they're due for a rebound, and we'll one day see even higher highs uh, than what's in their what what's in their past. So we're going to lead it off, and you're going to be blown away by our 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 special effects here <laughs> as we as we transition. Uh, so if you're watching this on YouTube. You can. Well, we're going to share a few charts from our friends at Y Charts, um, but if you're just listening, we'll try to explain as we go. But the first stock we're going to look at is Netflix. So Netflix in the last six months is down seventy-two percent from its high. That's that's incredible. And its market cap. I mean, this was Alex. This was a three hundred, almost a three hundred billion dollar company. It's now down to about eighty-four billion dollars. Alex, is Netflix a wreck or a rebound? Well, I should start by saying, I think the first time I wrote Netflix up, I, I effectively said, I think it's it's got a little bit ahead of itself. Maybe I dismissed it again, as I have for many years. Uh, shortly thereafter, they reported a difficult quarter and the stock went down a lot. And I had a lot of people telling me, you know, congrats, being patient, paid off. That was that was a smart thing to do. And we are down very significantly since then. So um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the short-term swings, uh, you got to can't put too much weight on what's happening in the very short term. Um, you know, I think Netflix is probably representative of uh, the direction of decline that you see for, for most of its competitors. Anybody who's really in the, you know, call it the premium video space, especially companies that are focused on kind of the, the VOD video on demand opportunity, whether that's SVOD subscription or, or AVOD uh, ad supported service. Um, you know, the story really probably goes back to the start of the pandemic when 
they had a six month period where they added, I believe it was 25 million subs by far the strongest performance in the company's history. Um, you know, the number, the numbers started to started to normalize as we came out of COVID. And you know, as I wrote in one of my articles, I basically said, you know, is this business going to return to kind of the low to mid fifties, two year stack growth rate that it, that it kind of exited at when the pandemic started, or are we looking at something different? You know, in a perfect world, you're talking about the growth rate continuing to accelerate on an absolute basis, meaning on a percentage basis you're kind of holding. Um, what we've seen subsequently is the numbers have gone very much in the wrong direction. Management is talking about, you know, basically a subscriber base barely growing this year or not growing very significantly, a comment that seemed completely unfathomable, you know, six months ago. Um, same time, it's having impacts on you know the PL and and what people think about the long-term future of the business. And also, you know, you have a lot of competitor activity as the chart here shows. You know, Disney Plus launched in late 2019 and, and now has about 140 million paid subs. So it's you know two-thirds of the way to Netflix's global sub base on a much lower ARPU, but still two-thirds of the way to, to Netflix's global sub base in a very short period of time. Um, you know, there's obviously a number of other competitors in the market as well. And, you know, I think this period, it's, it's very interesting for a number of reasons. For one, you know, I, I, I frequently tell myself or think about the idea of competitive advantages and, and thinking about what they mean on a relative basis and trying to understand competitive positioning through that lens. It's, it's something that for me has been really instructive in, in, in the media industry and in, in understanding something like ESPN. I think a lot of people misunderstand what the business is and why it was successful for so long. And I think there's a similar, a similar story at play here with something like Netflix. Um, you know, I think they really need to reassess where they're at now. And, and for a long period of time, you know, I think they've been pretty clear that it, the, their operating focus was simply growth at all costs, whether it was internal spend, whether it was content spend, they had the justification for doing so because the sub base kept growing so rapidly and the recurring revenue base, which is now north of, of $30 billion a year was growing so rapidly. Um, you know, when that slows down, it's time to, to sit down with a, a blank sheet of paper and really reassess what your competitive advantages are and where your focus should be. So, you know, long story short, I have a lot of faith in this management team. They've, they've been through difficult periods like this before, um, you know, most notably in the, in the DVD days where they, they faced some real stiff competition in, in the mid 2000s. As I noted in a recent article, you know, they announced their first price increase in 2004. Five months later, they came back and said, we're actually cutting prices and going below what the price point was before the hike. So they, they, they have the ability to recognize when they need to make you know, pretty drastic decisions. I think the way they communicated the ad supported tier was a little bit haphazard, but I, I think when you look at something like Nielsen data in the US, you have a pretty clear understanding why they think they need to go that direction. And again, that's a US a market with very high income levels and ability to pay for something like this. So I think they have a lot of options at their disposal, some of which I think are, are quite smart and worth pursuing and others that they probably will avoid, but I think they can find a path forward from here, but it's not a layup. Is the, is the main problem like the competition, Alex? I mean, right now we're looking at the, the run rate of streaming revenues for like Netflix, Disney, Warner Media, and Paramount. And I mean, you know, this goes back to the first quarter of 2020. Uh, but like, you know, if you go back before that, it was only Netflix, right? So is, the, is this the main issue? Is this just 
a new reality for them, do you think? I think part of the, I think the answer is one that we don't know. And I don't think management knows either, by the way. On, in, the, in the shareholder letter, they gave basically four reasons for why they think they're seeing a slowdown now. Competition was one of them. They also talked about password sharing, which I think is something of a uh, false narrative is probably not the right word, but I think it's a good problem for Netflix to have, which we can get into if we want to. They played that hand very well for the past 10 plus years. Um, you know, the other two are basically expansion of the TAM, things like connected TV sales, which I think I've seen data subsequently. I think Roku talked about it, that that market's been under some pressure because of macro reasons and also, you know, pull forward from pandemic and also supply chain concerns. And then finally, obviously, macro concerns with, with especially what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. So, so I think we can't really pinpoint it at this point, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, obviously, when when they were uh, one of basically two or three competitors. Yeah, the market's very different today than it was, call it three years ago. Right. Um, and Yervon, any thoughts on Netflix? Record rebound? Um, well, I, I think I, I said Netflix's situation is mostly a function of competition. I think they've had a, you know, basically from 2007 onwards until about 2019, they had a free runway. The only real competition was Amazon Prime. And I think that changed and everybody basically came um, around the same time. And it also coincided with their US market being mostly, or the North American market being not mostly, um, you know, saturated, right? So I think, yeah. And the, yeah, so I, I, okay, here's the way I think. I think Netflix is gonna rebound, but I don't think it's gonna ever go to go back to what the highs it has seen. The other thing is that I think Netflix is no longer, I think Netflix was valued like an eyeball stock or a tech stock. It should be valued like a media company. It's currently valued like a media company. And I think going forward, it should be valued like a media company. That was a brutal re-rating for it, like brutal. That's, and, and, like and that. Yeah, it's a brutal. A tech, yeah. uh, you know, for lack of a better term, like you said, tech valuation yeah. to a media valuation. Media valuation. And, and was, I think the... And I would say the third thing is that I think, the, you know, this is where I think my blame management, I think management uh, missed the boat on sort of finding the next thing, right? So they've, they've done a number of what I would call pivots, right? So DVD to streaming, streaming to original content, original content to what next, that pivot they've missed, right? And that pivot could have been anything. And maybe they're waiting for technology to change. So technology hasn't changed enough maybe to allow them to do a pivot. They tried a few different things like, you know, um, you know, nonlinear content and things like that, which really hasn't um, taken off. Um, and the final thing I would say is just, you know, there's no free cash flow in this business, right? And if all the free cash flow is in the tail, I don't know what the tail looks like, because if this is not the part of the tail, then what is part of the tail? So I think I have lots, lots of question marks. Um, you know, the other possibility, the final thing I'll say is that this company crashes to a 50 or 40 billion or $30 billion market cap, and then somebody acquires it. Uh, and, and I think, I don't have the belief that streaming is best as a part of a bigger bundle, not as a part of a standalone thing, because just standalone streaming is just so hard. Right? Those are my thoughts. I think just real quick to add on there, because I think it's, I actually, I agree with a lot of that. And I think, you know, it's funny, a great CEO is someone who has strategic vision, who has the ability to communicate that vision to shareholders and, and thus, you know, has, has the capital or the cost of capital to effectively get there over a long period of time and going through periods like this. I also think great management is the ability to recognize when things change and to potentially pursue an organic opportunities. And 
you know, streaming is a bad business is a, is a widely talked about narrative. And I, I think what's pretty self-evident is if Netflix is a bad business, the subscale players are in a much, much worse place. So if that's the reality, I think you need to at least consider what's going to happen to this industry as that becomes uh, a widely held belief. And Comcast, the news coming out that Comcast has been in discussions with EA and regardless of if that deal happens or not, is, is has a willingness to spin off NBCU, in my mind, is a huge change in the landscape. And, you know, we'll see what it leads to. But I think you're seeing the industry react to this. And obviously, you know, if you were going to, if you were going to have five or 10 billion of negative free cash flow over a period of years to chase this prize, and the prize is now half as attractive or a quarter as attractive as it was six to 12 months ago, you just have to wonder what kind of outcomes we'll see in the industry as a result of that. And look no further than Warner Brothers Discovery, where David Zaslov is telling you as clearly as he can, they'll effectively do anything they can need to hit their numbers. And they'll cut content budget in a big way if they have to do that to get there. And you know, these things will have an impact on the competitive dynamics over time. The only thing I'll add, and we got, we got more stocks to get to, so I'll try to make this really quick. But like, I feel like they missed an opportunity when their stock was high to like go out and uh, use their stock to acquire some IP, whether that was Paramount or uh, Discovery or like uh, Lionsgate. Like, like there's, there's IP out there. There's a finite amount of IP that has like real value. And I, I just feel like they missed that opportunity. Trying to create all of it originally just feels like a very hard road to do. And it's a, like a tough slog um, because, you know, it, it takes a while for that, that um, content to gain traction. I mean, look, look, Top Gun 2, they're making a sequel like 30 plus years after the original movie. But like that, that movie still holds, like it's still resident with a lot of people and consumers, uh, you know, uh, uh, around the world, but specifically in the U.S. And I just feel like, you know, the, I, I wish they had, uh, uh, or I think they should have, like gone out and acquired some IP. All right, um, next stock will be PayPal. And so PayPal is currently down almost 70% from its all-time highs. This is a, a year-long chart, and about a year ago is when it hit its high. Uh, its market cap, this was a company that was approaching $350 billion. I mean, this was like getting into real mega cap territory, and it is now like sub $100 billion, down uh, to about $90 billion. Uh, and I'm going to call this a rebound, guys. So uh, there's still uh, PayPal made a lot of mistakes, and the CEO in a in a recent uh, like analyst call like said like Look, we got ahead of ourselves with guidance. Uh, they they got caught up with with the the growth they were seeing during COVID, which at the time like they said they said they were going to reach 750 million uh, like active subscribers by like 2025 or 2026, something something like that. Uh, which, which at the time was like almost like double like what they were when they when they called that at their analyst day. That was I think that was early 2021, and uh, they had to withdraw all of that this year in January on their Q4 conference call. So in in less than 12 months, they like they they gave out this like crazy guidance for growth, and then said, you know what, we're we're walking that back. We're not going to hit those targets. On top of that, they've seen uh, eBay coming off, which which was a, a which we knew. Uh, was years in the making. Like they had signed when they spun off from eBay, they had signed a, a long exclusive contract with them. Um, and eBay long time ago, years ago said like uh, when, when that contract expired, they were going in another direction uh, for all their merchant acquiring um, on their back end. 
So like, so the growth right now, like, so with eBay coming off and with like uh, some of the growth pulled forward from COVID, like the growth right now doesn't look good. But I still think the, and given management's mistakes and they shouldn't have given that guidance and, and to have to withdraw it in a year is just brutal. I, I think in hindsight now, I'm a little less mad at management than I was because it seems like all management teams got caught up in COVID that like benefited from COVID. I mean, like going from Amazon who overbuilt capacity for, for their e-commerce uh, inventory to, to almost like every single, uh, you know, like other companies on this list that we'll be getting to in a second. But like so many companies got caught up in that COVID growth seeing thinking they were seeing like the new normal and they weren't. It was like a one, a one, one year, 18 month, like pull forward of growth for the next few years. And so growth is now slowing, but underneath all that, they still have 429 million active accounts. Customer engagement continues to go up. This last quarter, it went up 11%. Um, so the, these consumers are, are now seeing uh, like a, a, a lot more, uh, are, are using their PayPal accounts more, uh, you know, 11% more than they were, 11% more transactions per, per active account than they were the last year. Um, they're still growing revenue and earnings, albeit slowly because eBay rolling off and all the pull forward growth from COVID. I think we're going to see that reaccelerate. Like this is, they have one more quarter where eBay is going to be like they're lapping, lapping last year's results, which included eBay. In two quarters, that'll all be done. And as like the, they come more out of the pandemic, I think you're just going to see that growth reaccelerate. And I like their underlying assets. I don't think they're a commodity. Yes, there's a, a lot of like, uh, for for a hot minute, it looked like there was a lot of competition for them and a lot of like these one click uh, checkout things like Bolt and Fast, those things are, are fading fast. Yes, there are things like Apple Pay. Yes, there are things like Google Pay. Um, there's Zelle. Uh, you know, there was never going to be just one digital wallet. It's way too big of a market. And, you know, on top of all that, the valuation got way too ahead of itself. Um, you know, I think we can agree like in hindsight, I mean, like that the, the price to earnings ratio, I mean, this you know, uh, after being spun off from eBay, they were in the 30s for a long time. And then it kind of got re-rated up to the 50s. Um, it, but it, you know, at the height of COVID, at the height of their growth, they, they, their, their PE ratio soared over 100. And it's now down to, to 26. So, you know, we're talking about Netflix's brutal you know, re-rating. Uh, PayPal got one too. Uh, I just think from this valuation and for the underlying assets, like I still, I think, I think those, are, those are real assets. It's not... Uh, commoditized product with these many with this many uh, active users. So I'm going to call this a rebound. It's going to take a long time for them to get to their previous highs. I, I don't think this is a, a V-shaped recovery by any means. However, I do think from this valuation, it it, it should be a, a decent investment going forward. Thoughts? I don't have much thoughts uh, on PayPal. The only thing I'll say is that uh, uh, you know, all, a lot of company management should take lessons from Tim Cook about guidance. So all these companies basically went gaga over guidance. Tim Cook basically said, COVID, I am no longer going to give you any guidance. And basically they have not given, the only guidance they give is headwinds and headwinds and headwinds. Uh, I think that's really smart. Companies, if you can't give, you know, if you don't know what's going to happen, just don't give guidance. <laughs> that, and you know, that's actually what their, their CEO said. Like they're just totally uh, going to approach guidance different philosophically from now on and just saying like you know we need to uh we need to be more conservative we need to like consider like the the worst case scenario when we give guidance and, and things like that um and, and management definitely messed up i'm not trying to give management a pass here but uh 
they have kind of given a mea culpa on this, and I, I, I think they, I, I think they learned their lesson. I was just throwing yeah. an apple for good effect. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a really good point on guidance, and it's it's a topic that's worth you know addressing uh, more fully. And I, I wrote about this recently: the idea of having the right shareholders and. You know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing for, for management teams to do, especially at younger companies where cost of capital and the stock price can be such an important part of the equation. And you get sucked into playing this game. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a false sense of, 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 uh, of certainty, basically. I mean, these companies, as we've now learned in hindsight, they didn't have any better understanding. I mean, Peloton, case in point, they didn't have any better understanding on how it's going to play out than than any public shareholder did, and you know you get yourself in a very 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 difficult spot if you if you miss things like that, and if you're you know really geared towards short term financial targets. All right, so our next company that we're going to be doing is Upstart, a near bond. Upstart is down uh, over eighty percent from its all time highs. What's going on? Well, uh, Upstart is a relatively new company which made the, you know, call it the cardinal mistake of, you know, being over exuberant with guidance and then, you know, uh, you know, withdrawing your guidance resulting in what I would call uh, a complete lack of belief in whatever management says. And, and you know, there's a classic mistake that a lot of companies make and we've just been talking about. And I think that's really what has happened. Uh, the, the couple of things, the macro conditions. So Upstart is a company that provides uh, a platform for lending. So it's a two-sided, you know, think of it a two-sided platform. On one side, you have consumers. On the other side, you have basically banks and investors who are, you know, basically funding those loans. Most of its loans are pers uh, personal loans. So effectively, the rate that you can charge is a function of the um, you know the underlying um, you know uh, Fed rate, right? Um, the the big deal for this company is that it provides it's able to actually automate the entire process of loans. About seventy percent of the loans are fully automated and you know instantly approved. So this is a big. This is one of the reasons why the banks like it. But uh, they've basically said that look, you know, while we're a platform company, um, we are still very macro dependent in the sense that you know, as the rates go up, there'll be people in the margin who won't no longer qualify for a loan or no longer would want a loan because the rates are too high. So the demand for loans is going to go down, which effectively has an impact on um, on, on the company's earnings. The, the other big deal of this company is, uh, and it's really early in the game, if you show the next chart, is the way it's sort of approaching, um, you know, providing lending. So this is a chart which basically says that for all the loans that they have given, um, you know, Upstart buckets people into categories. So let's say A plus B, C, D, and E based on their assessment of risk. And the interesting thing is that you could be an A plus category and your FICO score could be say 639 or below. You could be an E category and, and, and you know, you could still have, you know, a 9.2% uh, loss for a 700 or above FICO score. So what basically they're saying is that, you know, FICO scores are very, uh, you know, is, 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 is a very one-dimensional tool. Of course, banks use more than that, but they use basically decision, decision trees with a small number of variables. They're using machine learning to sort of, you know, figure out, you know, the prime among the subprime and the subprime among the prime and sort of expand the pool. Um, and they're expanding into other things like uh, auto lending and so on. So I, I think this is, I like to describe this company as this is sort of at the model three phase, 
if you want to compare it with Tesla. Whether or not it is able to get able to take its models and expand into these other things that it's thinking about and expanding its market and expand the amount of earnings it can make is still largely unknown. We do know that what they're doing kind of works on one sector. If it translates, if they're able to translate into the auto refinancing market or the auto financing market, that's about a seven or eight times larger market than the current market that they're addressing. So. Um, is it a rebound or not? I, yeah, this, is a this is a stock that I call a very high reward, a very high risk uh, company. Um, it's got earnings, it's profitable. It's actually got a PE of, I think, under 20 right now. Um, and uh, yeah, like, I mean, it, 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 for the amount of uh, the earnings growth it has, the PE is really, really reasonable. Um, so, but it is a very, I think, a high reward, high risk stock. You know, this could easily 10x with some probability, it could easily half from here again, uh, just, just bear in mind. And again, it's that transition point where we don't know fully whether or not they'll be able to transition into the other areas. But if it does, this will be one of the largest fintech companies uh, listed in the US. So um, yeah, that's what I would say about it. So whether or not it's a rebound, it's hard to say. There's definitely a lot of potential here. Uh, like, do you think like the problem the market's having like was that they had some, they taken some more of the loans onto their balance sheet in that, or, or do you think that's not a problem? So I think the bigger problem is, is, as I said, is whether or not to believe management. So they've always had loans on their balance sheet because, you know, they use the balance sheet for what they call R&D loans. So they did a little bit more than R&D loans to sort of, you know, when the rates went really wild, they put some more loans on their balance sheet to sort of just sort of, you know, um, ride it out and then basically sell it off. Um, so I, I, I personally don't see it that as a problem, but they apparently were surprised. And they said, well, we are no longer going to put any more loans on our balance sheet because clearly the market hates it. But again, that also is another example of management being naive. Basically, the management is now letting the market guide what they're going to do, <laughs> which is also wrong. Right. So I think they're just I think still I think they've got good technology, but they really are still trying to figure out what it, you know, how the public markets work. Then the other thing is that they're saying that loss rates on their loans have stabilized, but nobody believes them. The problem really I think they've got is what management is saying on the calls, do you believe it or not? And I think the analyst community, the investor community is basically saying, well, we don't believe what you're saying because you keep flip-flopping. You know, you give guidance and you take it away. You're saying you're gonna put loans on the balance sheet. Then you're saying you're not gonna put it on the balance sheet. You know, it's that's the problem they've got. And they really need to figure that part out uh, that you can't be a servant to the market. They've become a servant to the market. I think that's their bigger issue than anything else. Um, you know, so, you know, they, instead of the market serving them, the, uh, us, you know, they are becoming subservient to the market. I think that's the issue they've got. Right. I mean, we're talking about like Netflix having a re-rating from being a tech company to a media company. And it's almost like this went from a fintech company to a lender. And that's, you know, if, if they, until they convince the market otherwise, you know, I don't know if they're going to get that, that former valuation back, even with their, I mean, they have like strong earnings growth. Uh, like, I mean, it, is it still in the triple digits on your bond, like their earnings growth? Yeah, it's like 200% plus. Look, look, I think it's, I think whether, there is no doubt that they are in the lending business. I think that is, I, I actually think that is less, the, less of the issue. I think the issue right now is if you're making personal loans, what is the loss rate on those loans, right? And are they sort of below the levels that you expected? Management is saying, yes, they're below the levels we expected, but nobody believes them. 
I think I think there's a so they're basically thinking that the loss rates are going to go through the roof and then basically this thing is going to blow up and if it blows up then the investor community which is buying the loans will stop buying them right so it's a two-sided remember it's a two-sided network right but what I say is that I think something is working because the number of banks that are actually joining their network is steadily increasing so there are banks that are actually white labeling their solution so that's what I'm calling there. So, so there is proof that stuff is working and the banks that are in you know, the credit unions and banks that are signing up, they are signing up and saying, okay, we are happy to drop the FICO score because I think this is working for us, right? But the analyst community is saying, well, we don't know, right? They, and, and then they're looking at the fact that, well, there was a period of time uh, when the loans froze from the investor community, when the bank, when the, the company had to fund the loans from its balance sheet. So that means, you could think of that as the investor community having not the investor as in the stock investor, but the people who are funding the loans from the, you know, the JP Morgans and whoever, Goldman Sachs, they froze, right? Which means they're having second thoughts. So I think those are the issues that they have to sort of work through. Um, you know, and it's, I think it's less about, I think that, you know, the, the market doesn't know how to rate, to value this company right now, whether it's a fintech or, I think there's just a lot of other questions, right? Uh, you know, so, yeah, again, I, I think in the fullness of time, we will know. <laughs> sure. Alec, do you have thoughts on this one? No, I think that, uh, that, ca that captures it pretty well. I learned a lot right there. <laughs> All right. All right. So our next company we're going to look at is Peloton. So this is uh, this might be one of my favorite punching bags as of late. Um, it is down 88 uh, more than I mean, this is like their their year chart. I mean, last year, they're down 88%. But from their like absolute high, I think it's like, I mean, it, it's more it's over 90%. Um, it's, it's market cap has gone from uh, approaching like in the high 30 billion mark to now down to like a sub $5 billion uh, market cap. Uh, Alex, What's, what's going on with Peloton? Yeah, I mean, the, the short and sweet of it all is they were a massive COVID beneficiary. The number of connected fitness subscribers, which is the people who are currently paying $39 a month for access to their classes and their instructors, increased 6x from the start of the pandemic to today, went from 500,000 to about 3 million. Um, management, uh, you know, effectively believe that that would not slow down and that this was a step change in their long-term growth. And, you know, they, they, they made some capital allocation decisions like buying pre-core and, uh, you know, they were starting to build a, a manufacturing facility in Ohio. And now some of these decisions very quickly look like they were a big mistake. Um, you know, in this past quarter, the number of new hardware sales was down, hardware revenues were down 40% year over year. Inventories were up 50% year over year. Um, they've, the price of the bike has been changed multiple times in the past, uh, since September 19, September 2019. Um, you know, they have a new CEO, Barry McCarthy, who used to be the CFO at Spotify. And I think he has interesting ideas about how to, to reimagine kind of the business model and, and the lifetime economics that they, or the lifetime value that they see from the average customer. Um, you know, in the short term, as he, as he clearly said on the call, they have to focus on cash flows over over growth opportunities essentially and you know they have a huge test coming up on on june 1st the price of the subscription will will be increased from 39 to, to 44 dollars a month and churn has been very very good historically we'll see if that has any impact 
if it doesn't, it, it starts to present interesting opportunities for how they can, can reimagine, you know, the business model to some extent and how they price the product on the front end, because they know that's the biggest impediment to new purchases. Um, but even success on that front has, has its own challenges because they are, they're changing the cash flow dynamics of when they receive money from their customers. So there, there are a lot of issues to address here and even, even success in terms of you know, transformation will, will present some pretty significant challenges. But yeah, this is, uh, for my money, this is probably the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest COVID winner to loser that I've seen. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that's right. So is it a wreck or rebound in your eyes? I think it's very, very difficult to say right now. Um, I, I said on my last write-up, I'm essentially in, in the mode where I'm watching and seeing how this goes and trying to get a really clear understanding of, of what happens as they pull some of these levers. We have very early data and you know it's somewhat encouraging, but it's very early. And this price increase, if it, if it results in a, a step change in churn, I think they have to go back to the drawing board. And as I wrote, I, I, I don't know what options remain from that point to truly think about this business in a different way. And that makes it very, very difficult. You know, the other really important piece in my mind is they are clearly doubling down on the digital subscription, which is basically access to a lot of this stuff without purchasing the company's hardware. And this is their vision for how they get to a, a, a global business that has, you know, tens of millions of subscribers. And I think that's a very interesting avenue to pursue, but it's also going to be a very difficult area to actually win in, I think. And it's, it's, it's a very long-term challenge. And, you know, when you're talking about in the short term, the need to, to raise cap capital as they did, and, you know, Wall Street Journal reporting that they're out looking to sell 15 to 20% of the company to, to secure, you know, the financial stability of the business. Uh, the long-term opportunities start to go uh, to the rear view mirror really quick when you, when you need to worry about paying the bills. And Nirvan, what are your thoughts? <laughs> my love says it all well look you know i'm not a fan of any business that uh, well, okay so it's a good service but a poor business i, I put um you know it's sort of, sort of in the same bucket as netflix just worse um they look you know they have to compete with you know uh apple fitness on one hand which is you know it's going to be bundled with something they have to compete with Stav strava and so many others right i mean the digital subscription business for fitness is just very very hard um yeah i think uh, it's, a, it's a wreck, uh, but I think it has what I call an acquisition potential, but although I don't know, I mean, Google has shown particular penchant for buying what I would call tier two uh, assets <laughs> in that space. Uh, so they bought Fitbit. This would be a natural acquisition for them uh, because, you know, it'll nicely fit in, you know, you have Fitbit, you've got a fitness component there, you just buy this digital subscription thing. Um, and and then, then I think it would be valuable as a bundle um under under the google sort of umbrella so that, that's that i think is the net outcome and that's i think makes sense why they're focusing sort of on the subscription side because then it becomes more valuable um their pre-core or whatever they purchased that was just a bad idea uh <laughs> it was just money, good money thrown after bad stuff uh, anyways i you know i'm not a fan of uh, peloton at all yeah i mean they, they definitely have like loyal customers that that love the product I just think like we're, we're talking about like all these companies that like uh, saw the surge like at the beginning of COVID and now have like are, are having that hangover like from afterwards, right? Like, and, and all, I think almost all these companies probably fit that bill. 
the problem with Peloton is it's like, so we talked about PayPal giving like bad guidance. We talked about upstarts management and like, they're saying, oh, we, we're going to put loans on the balance sheet. No, we're not. Yes, you know, and, and like confusing Wall Street and Wall Street just like hammering them for it. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about like Netflix. None of those companies though made the capital allocation decisions that this company did. Like, you know, at the height of their like euphoria, you know, going into like COVID. Uh, you know, uh, like no, and, and those these those decisions that they made, they're just not like it's not just guidance you can take back. And okay, your stock price takes a hit. Like that's like real cash that that's gone and, and essentially like wasted. Uh, you know, it just they, they those decisions really put them in a bad spot. Well, to near bond's point, you know, once you start separating the hardware and the software from one, one another, the competitive dynamics are very very different. And the only other thing I'd quickly add as well. Know, to the comment on a tech company potentially buying them or a Netflix or anybody else. I think ATVI is going to be a real test to see if that Microsoft deal actually gets done. And if that doesn't, um, you know, the, the narrative that big tech basically can't go out and buy, I mean, it's most acute for, it has been most acute for Facebook in my mind, but the idea that we might get to a place where regulators just say these huge tech companies basically can't buy anybody. I think that's a the real possibility that that actually happens, which that's the floor that a lot of people have been talking about for some time. So, yeah, that, that's a net negative if that happens because a lot of these companies will have no out; they're going to zero. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, I was going to quickly add. So, uh, capital, on capital allocation, that's one thing Upstart got right. It did sell additional shares at one hundred and twenty dollars. So, <laughs> so, so they raised some money, put it on their balance sheet. Uh, wasn't which I that like was right after they said they weren't? Like, wasn't that like, hey, we're not going to raise no. capital, and then like a week later, like, oh yeah, we are. Or it was no, no, they, they didn't. They didn't do that. They, <laughs> well, I don't know. That was, somebody else. that was Peloton. Oh, that was probably that was Peloton. <laughs> yes, Peloton did that. No. We are not raising capital. We don't need money. And then they raise money. Yes. All right. So the next company we're going to talk about is Block, or uh, as as it was known for years, was Square. Uh, over the last year, it's down sixty five percent or sixty four percent. But like from its height, uh, it's down like well over 80 percent now. Um, <laughs> This company, I have a real love-hate relationship with. Uh, you know, at its height, it was over a hundred and twenty-five billion-dollar company. It is now a a forty-five billion-dollar company, which which is probably more in line with their with their true potential. Um, so the things they get right, right? So Square, like they have this huge network of sellers. They have on the Square what they now call the Square side, like that's their their seller hardware. That they give to sellers and the software they they give to small and medium-sized businesses to support uh, their their core business functions, and, and they have like uh, consumers on the cash app, which now like those consumers on the cash app, like we we're talking about, like uh, you know, while it's only forty million monthly active users on the cash app, like they use the cash app far more than like PayPal uh, account holders use their PayPal accounts. I mean, the cash app uh, accounts are very heavily engaged with the app, so. If they can, it, and their their acquisition of Afterpay was supposed to like connect these two user bases, and, and that's the golden goose. Because so once you have a, in a typical transaction, if, if I go to a, 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 you know Alex's store, like he he owns a, a food truck, and I use my credit card and like you know like I pay ten dollars for that cheeseburger or whatever, like by the time it actually hits Alex's bank account, well the credit card network took a fee. Like the, the banks take their fees, like, you, you know, so, so it, it, it's not, he's not getting the true $10 that I just paid for my meal. Well, all that money 
that's under the Square umbrella. If I'm a Cash App user and Alex is using like the the Square like um, like hardware and you know for for payments on, for his small business, like now it's staying under the Square umbrella and nobody else is taking those fees. Meaning like these are just very high margin transactions for Square. So that is like the the I, I love this part of Square, like the fact that they and you know that they have payroll. So like if if Alex hires a Nearbond to like grill the burgers in the back of the truck, like you know, and a Nearbond takes his like you know, uh, because Alex is a square seller and, and, and you know, he, and, and using the square payroll to like get paid and, you know, direct deposited into his cash app. I mean, like the more just that money has a chance to stay in this square ecosystem. And granted, this is like, you know, I'm just talking about like, you know, uh, this is still very small amounts, but the more square can do this, uh, it just becomes very, very high margin transactions. Now, <laughs> there's just, there's just a, a, a a lot of problems. And one, I think I have to question like Jack Dorsey's focus. Um, you know, like when you saw like how Dorsey's been since he left Twitter as the CEO and now he's off the board, um, you know, and when he was on Twitter, he, he said certain things as the CEO. And when he left, he's like, hey, you know, uh, here's a quote. The idea and service is all that matters to me and I will do whatever it takes to protect both. Twitter as a company has always been my sole issue and my biggest regret. It has been owned by Wall Street in the ad model. Taking it back from Wall Street is the correct first step. In principle, I don't believe anyone should own or run Twitter. Now, mind you, this, he never said anything like this when he was CEO. And, um, uh, you know, and, and Dorsey's like completely focused on Bitcoin. He goes, I don't think there's anything more important in my lifetime to work on. And I don't think there's anything more enabling for people around the world. Uh, that's what he said about Bitcoin. Um, and the latest uh, features, like in, in Square is like a very innovative company. They're always releasing like, like features that uh, for their Square sellers or for the cash app users. Well, lately it's all been revolved around Bitcoin. Uh, like, so on their, their last conference call, they're talking about like uh, what they, uh, the new features on cash app. And uh, they, they were all like, they were all, they were all Bitcoin. Um, you know, yes, uh, I'm glad that the, the cash app users like can buy and sell Bitcoin in their accounts. Like if that's something people want to like engage with their accounts, that's great. Um, but now they're like, hey, you can, uh, the, our latest feature is with an activated cash card, you can receive a portion of your recurring paycheck deposit in Bitcoin with no transaction fee. Or, um, you know, it also made cash app wallets compatible with other crypto wallets on the Lightning network. And that's a network that enables like faster and cheaper Bitcoin transactions. And it just seems like, uh, like these are all the things that, that Square is focused on. And I'm not sure that's the best way to build out a, a digital wallet, at least beyond some like niche cases or right now. Um, maybe it's the future. I, I don't personally see that though. And even, you know, it, it seems like a remote possibility at this point anyway, there would be time later you can work on this if, if that was becoming more apparent. Um, and, and just his, his, his remarks about Twitter, uh, like after he left and, and with Square's mission statement, it's like to democratize like these, like, you know, um, uh, like to serve like the underserved bank in the world, you know, and give them like democratized banking services that a lot of times like people on the cash app side or businesses on the Square side, like didn't traditionally have access to. And that's, that's a great mission. I, I'm all behind that. Um, but you wonder is the, if the mission is more important to Dorsey than, than profits or, or anything like that. Um, I think those are, are fair questions now. Um, so I have a very love-hate relationship with this company. I, I've, I've owned shares for the last five years. Um, uh, you know, I was fortunate I've, I, I was fortunate to get in really early, but I averaged up a lot. 
so that like you know my position right now isn't like too 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 up overall um and i'm, I'm holding my shares but like I, I do have real concerns but at the same time like I, I see some great potential too like i said connecting those those buyers uh on the cash app side those consumers to the sellers on the square side like that's that's real potential like that 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 really is like something that like no one else can really like besides paypal um, no one else really can can do. And Square seems like much more focused on that than than PayPal is. So um, I, I can see this being a wreck or a rebound. Like bottom line, like uh, it, it's not going to surprise me either way. For now, I'm I'm holding my shares, uh, just almost holding my nose about the like Dorsey and 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 everything else um, because I see the potential, but but I really don't know. This is somewhat anecdotal, but it's a thought I've had about these on the consumer facing portion of these businesses for some time and it's, you, you think about something like cash app which clearly has served a role in terms of buying selling trading crypto venmo very very successful over the last couple of years has become an app that you know anybody who's younger uses all the time to send money to and from friends i think moving beyond that core use case and becoming something bigger is is a really big ask and it's very difficult to do and you know it's like a lot of businesses i think people brand becomes something becomes something in their mind and they associate it with it that with that activity but to really change that and do more with it is is very difficult and you can look at you know look at BAC or JPM or even Wells you know their their digital customer bases have grown very 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 significantly over the last you know 5 to 10 years they're they're doing a pretty effective job at least based on the data of serving that customer need and you know that doesn't that doesn't mean that Square or PayPal can never figure these things out. I just think it's going to be very very difficult to get a large number of people to to change the way that they they live. And hey, Nirvan, you have thoughts on Square or any uh, block? I'll always call it Square. It'll be years before I. I, <laughs> I don't have anything special to add to what you guys have said. So I'll just. All right. So. Home. All right. So the next company we're going to cover is uh, Spotify. Uh, Spotify is down over the last six months, down about 60% from its highs. Um, its market cap, you know, it was it was approaching 50 billion. It's now uh, basically at $20 billion, uh, $20 billion market cap. Uh, Alex, what's, what's going on with Spotify? It's a very interesting story. I'd start with, you know, on the user side, I think they've continued to do incredibly well over the last uh, two or three years, they've added about 200 million uh, MAUs, and that, that's basically the size of their entire uh, user base at, at the start of that period. So they've had huge user growth. They actually haven't seen the hangover from COVID, and it's less clear if they were ever even really a beneficiary from that. It was a much, much less clear impact on their business than it was for someone like a Netflix. Um, you know, I think the really, the really big problem is that management has has spoken to some gross margin targets that if you look back over the last five years, they've effectively added hundred bps of gross margin expansion per annum, which is fairly significant and would put them on a reasonable pace of getting to those numbers over time. The problem is that the vast majority of that benefit happened in the first 18 months or so of that period when they, when they renegotiated their label agreements in advance of the direct listing. And the results over that subsequent period have been uh, much less meaningful in terms of the gross margin expansion. I think some of that is explainable based on some of the things they've done in the business, most notably the investments they've made in the podcast space. Um, you know, a major issue has been 
the ability of management to, to clearly articulate what that means in terms of the numbers. And then most importantly, obviously, what the kind of payoff is over the long term. I think shareholders are very willing to, to fund that bet and take the risk of it working, but they need clarity in terms of what that means. And, you know, the, the company's talked about things like a la carte before. We haven't really seen anything on that front. They've talked about pricing increases, which they have taken in select markets, and they've talked about those favorably. And by the way, so some of their industry players, some of the labels have also said that Spotify's churn in response to those price increases is very low. The problem, I think, is we're not seeing we're not seeing follow-on action on the back end, and really the the actual impact for those price increases is relatively small. So I think it's a it's always been a very difficult business. I think the path to it being a much better business was there and is there. I think this is partly a communication problem and partly uh, just really figuring out what the business is. They have product market fit, but they, they need to show that they have power and the ability to command a reasonable share of the economics. And Nirbhan, I, I know you have some thoughts on Spotify, so <laughs> why don't you take well, it? Well, I don't, I'll make it quick. I don't like this business largely because I think it's just, so a business with what, 400 million subs that really still, you know, that's pretty big scale. If you can't make money now, I would put uh, my money saying that they're not going to make money. Uh, it's a very competitive market. Uh, you know, every other platform can, you know, if you are Google, you should be doing podcasting. If Apple, you should be doing podcasting. If I'm a creator, I want to be everywhere, uh, not just on Spotify. So yes, you can have Joe Rogan, uh, you know, exclusives. I think it's again, an example of a good service, which people love, but it's just a bad business model just by definition. I think that's the problem. And, Innovating in that space is extremely hard because you know what you do. You integrate with hardware, but you don't own the hardware. You you know you create new experiences, but you don't own the hardware. So you really can't create new experiences. It's really hard to do that because you don't have the loop. Um, so I don't know. I, I think you know. And then of course they're crybaby. They like to cry to um, regularists saying you know how the you know I don't like companies which are, <laughs> I basically say you're crying because you just don't have an innovative business. <laughs> That's why you're crying because there's innovation and disruption happening all the time. It's just that you know your business is not innovative, and that's why you go and cry to regulators all the time. So um, yeah, so I'm not a fan. You know, I if I have to make a prediction of all the list, I'm saying this one goes to five billion dollar market cap <laughs> uh, from where it is. Uh, that would be my prediction. Uh, at, at some point, somebody might be, and I don't think anybody who's going to take it out either, because you know, there's nothing here on offer to acquire. If I'm Google, I don't need it because I've got Google Music. If I'm Apple, I've got Apple Music. There's nothing here that you know they they can offer. So, uh, yeah, my bet for if I had to make one bet, I'll bet on this one being the down. This is a wreck. Yeah, it's an interesting example of a space where you know the Spotify play is a really good book about the company's history. It's interesting to think about the position they were in, you know, call it ten years ago, and the position some of their competitors were in, most notably Apple, which I mean literally invented the podcast space <laughs> and. You know, you look back at the subsequent results over the next 10 years, and I think the data pretty clearly shows that at least in terms of user acquisition and the like and, and user engagement, building product that people love, Spotify has kind of swept the floor over that period. That's not to say Apple hasn't done anything right, but, you know, it's a massive company that has a lot of focus in a lot of areas, and Spotify is clearly focused on one objective. Um, that doesn't mean it's easy. It's going to be very, very difficult, and it has been very, very difficult, but I think there's a path for it to, to get there, but... It, it will probably require more aggressiveness in terms of how they operate the business than what they've had to do previously. And part of that is to the point of this whole discussion is, is stock price and, and cost of capital. And when the world changes, you need to 
reassess what you're doing and what the right path is to go forward. And we'll see if they're capable of making that shift. All right. So last one uh, will be Okta, a near bond. This stock is down uh, over 70% from its highs. Over the last year, it's down 68%. And this was a high flyer for, for a long time. Uh, but, you know, one of the most beloved like SaaS stocks, if you will. Um, and its market cap is now $13 billion. That's from like over a high of $40 billion. What's, what's going on with Okta in your mind? You're on mute. Sorry. Yeah. So with Okta, I'll say some of, you know, when it was 40 billion, probably it was, you know, gone ahead of itself on its 13 billion. It's, it's really become cheap. Um, uh, I think, you know, some of that is that they acquired odd zero. So, you know, there's, I think, some doubts of whether they're going to write down odd zero or not. Um, and that's an accounting thing. Odd zero is actually growing really strongly. But you just look at, I mean, look, look this company is, it's not that this company is, is vanishing. This is an enterprise services business, right? I mean, its growth has been 63% with the acquisition. Its standalone growth last quarter was 39%, close to 40%. Um, the thing I point out to people is like, you know, this, it seems like Okta's days are limited, but it's got $2.7 billion of remaining performance obligations, right? That's the line below the subscription. The remaining performance obligation basically says that these are contracts that have been signed that are going to be, this is the amount of money that they're going to recognize in due course, right? This is not some, you know, uh, fly by night company. This is actually a real company. They made a few missteps including one with uh, you know there was a hacking into uh, uh, octa which which um, you know they handled i think badly but you know this company is extremely well it's good you know it it can generate a lot of free cash flow it hasn't it was generating free cash flow so i will say one of the reasons the valuation went up is it was generating 15 percent plus free cash flow margins then they acquired zero and then that changed everything and then it went from being free cash flow positive free cash flow negative it went barely free cash flow positive last in the last report uh but you can see that negative movement i think has hurt them uh, the negative movement on operating margins have hurt them but you know i think nothing has fundamentally changed with this company um you know i hold it i think you know you know again on, on the balance of probabilities i think over a five-year period this is handily market beating i really like the stock at this price um yeah i, I again as i said you know a lot of SaaS companies have been sold off a lot of cloud companies have been sold off but every indicator of data point says that cloud is growing strongly and you know, even Splunk said their cloud is this cloud is growing strongly. So that says something. Uh, anyways, that those are my thoughts. So, Nirvan, you've always said like you you're, you don't want your company to be like a, a feature of someone else's platform. Like so, how like in, in my mind, but that's what Okta is. So like, tell me tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah. So yes. So there's. I think if you're a feature from a consumer point of, if you're a consumer business and you're a feature that is a really sucky position to be in. That's what has happened to Spotify. That's what's basically happening to Netflix to some extent, right? Peloton is the greatest example of that. I think in the enterprise world, it works slightly in a different way. First of all, to be like Okta, which is an identity, identity provider, you have to have integrations with everything. So the more integrations you have, the more sort of, you know, other people will integrate with you, the more valuable you are as a service provider. That's number one. Number two is that this is, you know, this is an enterprise business, right? So you sign deals, which are, you know, three years, five years long, uh, contracts, right? Enterprises do not change their software that quickly. 
Um, yes, it's a feature in the sense that, yes, you could get a similar sort of service from, say, Microsoft, but a lot of companies do not want to do that. A lot of companies do not want their eggs in one basket, or they might want an independent uh, cloud provider for uh, identity management, for example, right? So again, I, I think a number of reasons you want, you know, you want, you want to be supportive of multi-cloud, you want to have, you know, your eggs spread across multiple baskets, you have enterprise clients, you might have a better solution. You also, the, the other, I think the final thing I'll say is that they've also, got, the acquisition of Ordzer, I think in the long run is going to work out really well, because that really is the engine that helps build uh, customer side identity management so that's basically apis and code uh which i don't think the other companies many of the other companies provide so i think uh, they have built a strategic advantage there um yeah and it's a big market i think you know they can live uh, alongside microsoft and so on so this is a little bit beyond just a feature and enterprise markets i think work slightly differently um compared to consumer markets if you don't want to be a feature in a consumer market that's really a bad place alex any thoughts on okta just one point, it's kind of tangential, but I was, I was looking at AWS revenue growth rates the other day and just, I noticed something that I hadn't seen previously, which is, you know, they, they saw somewhat of a tailwind. They were decelerating at a certain pace and they saw somewhat of a tailwind throughout the pandemic and that trend's starting to slow somewhat. And I read companies like Airbnb or Match or plenty of others who rely on AWS as their infrastructure. And it just got me thinking, you know, it's funny. We might get to the end of COVID in the fullness of time and be like everybody who benefited from this ultimately that ultimately faded off and it was uh, it was a temporary blip and we've certainly seen and I you know looking at retailers now you're, you can see the sales results in categories outside of basically essentials and as as Target said on their call you know our Q1 sales are basically forty percent higher than they were in Q1 19 and they're not a big they're not a big store count grower so we'll see how much of that actually sticks at the end. And, and the answer may be that a lot of this was uh, just a temporary bump. Yeah, for sure. It, it definitely looks that way. Uh, so in your mind, Okta is a, a rebound in your eyes. Yeah, Okta, yeah, Okta I think is a, is a solid rebound in my eyes. Yeah. All right. Strong buy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that wraps it up. So that's our, that's our seven stocks today. Netflix, PayPal, uh, Peloton, Upstart, Okta, Block, and uh, Spotify. I was trying to remember all of those on the fly. Uh, Alex, for those interested uh, in following you, where, where can they find you? Yeah, the easiest place is on Twitter, uh, at TSOH underscore investing. And then, yeah, as Matt said at the intro, I run the TSOH Investment Research Service. Uh, I send write-ups to subscribers every Monday and every other Thursday, and effectively... I worked on the buy side for about a decade and I decided to take all the work that I did day to day and, and, and make that a product that I send directly to subscribers. And then anytime I do anything in my portfolio, I disclose those changes before they're implemented. So it's complete portfolio transparency, complete research transparency. Awesome. Uh, thanks for joining us, Alex. Uh, I'm Matthew Cochran. And for Nirvana Mahanti, we're Seven Investing and we're here to empower you in your future. Uh, have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.